Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. We have Marsha Montenegro coming by the podcast again today to talk about panentheism, which is a growing belief in the progressive Christian church, but it also finds its way into the evangelical church. So what is it? How can we spot it? We're going to talk about it on today's podcast. Well, before becoming a devout Christian, my guest, Marsha Montenegro, was a professional astrologer for eight years. Before that, she was involved with various New Age, occult, and Eastern beliefs and practices. She's been on the podcast before, so if you missed her first couple of episodes with me, definitely go back and check those out. We talk about her story of coming out of the New Age and into Christianity. And then the second episode, we talk about signs of New Age thought in the church, because many people think New Age isn't really a thing anymore, but it's it's alive and well. It just might look a little different now. So definitely check those out. She runs a website that's devoted to providing a biblical look at all things New Age and occult, and you can find that at christiananswersforthenewage.org, Kana uh, for short. Is it Kana or K- it's Kana, right, Marsha? Yeah, it's Kana. Kana. Yeah. Awesome. Well, she's written a book called Spellbound, The Paranormal Seduction of Today's Kids, and uh, I'm just thrilled to have you back on, Marsha. It's been, it's been difficult to make this actually happen, hasn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Things kept coming up. And um, we rescheduled like a million bajillion times. And then when we finally actually did record the podcast, my hard drive died right after. And then I lost everything that we had recorded and actually lost a couple other ones. I lost a podcast episode I had done with Brett Kunkel on the transgender issue as well. Oh, which I'm so yeah. bummed and I'm, I hope to have him back on, but I'm kind of embarrassed to ask because that actually happened twice with him. <laughs> oh so, my goodness. So oh, Brett, no. if you're listening, I'm, I'm a moron. Just please come back. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it's fixed now. My husband fixed my computer so that whatever I save onto my desktop will go up to my cloud. 
Oh, so good. It's, good. it's this should, we should be good. <laughs> but <laughs> thank you so much for your patience. And I'm just so thrilled that this is actually happening. I am as well, Elisa. I'm really <laughs> glad we, <laughs> we, we are able to do it again. <laughs> yes. And today we're going to talk about something called panentheism. Uh, but before we get into it, I thought it might be good just to talk about a couple of things very quickly. There is a wonderful Facebook group that has just been started. And Marsha is one of the uh, admins on the page. And it's called Discussing Progressive Christianity. And it's it's a group where concerned Christians can come together and kind of have discussions about the progressive invasion that they're seeing happening in their churches and and on their social media and among their friends. And uh, it, it's just, I've been in there a little bit active on there as well. And it's just been a great place to kind of process some of these concerns. And am I getting the name of that right, Marcia? Is it Discussing Progressive Christianity? Uh, yes, it is. That That is the... Um Name of the group, uh, Isaac, who who I think started it. That's right. Yeah. Uh, officially uh, decided to use. Yeah. So that's yeah. Definitely check that out if you're on Facebook and you want to connect with other biblically minded Christians who have concerns about these things. It's it's just been a really I think a very productive and fruitful group. Some really great discussions going on in there. So check that out. Uh, so Marsha, before we get into panentheism, we're coming up on Easter. And whenever we come up on a major holiday like Christmas or Easter, things like that, there always start to circulate on social media, blogs and podcasts claiming that Easter is pagan, that we shouldn't be celebrating Easter because it's really just a copy of some ancient pagan rituals and things like that. And I noticed that you recently addressed this on Facebook. You you wrote a blog post. Just give us a quick two-minute uh, overview. It, is Easter pagan? Should should we be concerned about this? Should we be celebrating Easter as Christians? Uh, no, Easter is not pagan, and yes, we should be celebrating it as Christians. <laughs> That's the short <laughs> That's answer. The short, that's a very <laughs> short answer. Um, yes, it's unfortunately the idea that it's based on some pagan practices or beliefs was uh, started at least in part by a man named Alexander Hislop, who wrote a book. Um, and he, the thing is, he he put a lot of things together, associated a lot of things that have no historical basis. He also, at the time he wrote this, which was in the way back in the 1800s, a lot of the archaeological evidence we have now did not exist then. So there was more of a uncertainty about the history of certain things. Mm. So combining that with the way he made um, incorrect and false associations, uh, the book actually does not give anything valid that would tie Easter to anything pagan um, or Christmas for that matter. Mm. And from there, uh, some of those ideas uh, were picked up by cults. Uh, A lot of the cults uh, really come down hard on things like Easter and Christmas as being pagan. And unfortunately, some Christians uh, tend to just believe that, and it can sound very true. Mm. Uh, for example, some people think there actually was a goddess named Iestra, uh, something like E-O-S-T-R-E, and that Easter comes from that. But there's no historical evidence for such a goddess at all. And some think it has to do with uh, another goddess like Ishtar, but there's no connection at all to Ishtar. Mm. Uh, 
that kind of that word, uh, the word from those languages, uh, the Middle Eastern languages do not migrate into English. And so my my um, blog, which actually is based on an article now on my website. So you can go to my website and look for Easter is not pagan. And I have it there. Um, and I, I point out the Easter eggs, actually decorating eggs was originally first done uh, by Christians. Wow. And uh, also there's different stories about the Easter bunny. One of them is that the German immigrants had a tradition of an egg laying hare, H-A-R-E. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how that came about, <laughs> but, but they made nests in which this creature could lay its colored eggs, and that spread across the U.S. and, and became part of Easter. So it's that, that one is... That's one story. There might be some others. But there's the idea that, uh, you know, since rabbits are so fertile, uh, that they were a pagan symbol of fertility. So I want to say something quickly here. Almost every animal has been a pagan symbol. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, because we're in the created world, and, of course, this world is a world God created, and so what do people pick as symbols? They pick things from the world, whether it's an animal or a geometric symbol or whatever. Um, not only is it true that a lot of animals have been pagan symbols, a lot of animals have also been Christian symbols. For example, the phoenix has been both a pa- pagan and a Christian symbol. So uh, the thing is, is that God created rabbits. Right. So uh, right. <laughs> you know, having a, a little Easter bunny, uh, giving your kid an Easter bunny doesn't mean that you're promoting a pagan worldview. It depends on how you celebrate Easter. How mm. you know what are you doing? If you decide it's okay to let your kids look for colored eggs and have a Easter basket, and then you know you you also tell them what the resurrection means. And, of course, the resurrection is central to the Christian faith, and you explain that to them, and they understand what it is, and the the bunny and the eggs are just a fun thing to do on Easter. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Now, some Christians would rather keep any kind of trivial thing like Easter baskets and and chocolate eggs. You know, they, they would rather not do that on Easter and keep it totally focused on Christ and the resurrection. And if they choose that, of course... Uh, that is perfectly fine. Just don't avoid Easter for the wrong reasons. It is not pagan. So go to my website and read read yeah. the article. <laughs> well, yeah, that's really helpful, honestly. I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of people because there's so much crazy information circulating on social media, and we we see just all kinds of bad thinking everywhere. And so check that out on her website if you're listening, christiananswersforthenewage.org, and and you can read more about that. Okay, so panentheism. So one of the reasons, Marcia, that I wanted to talk to you about this is because your work is typically in the realm of New Age, and my work is typically in the realm of progressive Christianity. But as we've seen, as we've gotten to know each other and, and follow each other on social media, our worlds overlap a lot. Yes. So there are a lot of overlapping beliefs between New Age and progressive Christianity. And one of those overlaps is is this idea of panentheism. So we're seeing this. In fact, I'll just start from a personal place. I began to see panentheism spring up among my friends who had become progressive Christians. They 
they claimed progressive Christianity. And then shortly after, I'm starting to see them claim that they're panentheists. And so that was kind of the first I had, I had heard of pantheism, but that was the first I'd really heard about this idea of panentheism. And so some really prominent progressive writers have uh, affirmed this view of the nature of God. And so we want to talk about it. And this is also something that's prevalent in New Age. So in order to understand panentheism, we have to start with pantheism. So Marcia, give us an idea of what is pantheism and what types of religious or philosophical groups would hold to the view of pantheism, and then we'll get We'll build from there. Okay. Uh, so pantheism um, is easier to recognize. This is the idea that you identify God uh, or some kind of deity that you believe in with creation. So creation is actually God and God is creation. So the rocks and the rivers and the moon um, and the, you know, the animals and everything is God or somehow a part of God and is divine. So nature is sacred and divine because it has a divine presence in it. Now in the new age, they might say <clears throat> divine energy or sacred energy. So it can be termed a lot of different ways. There are a lot of variations in how people express it, but pantheism is a view you find in some, in some of the new age um, some neo-pagan beliefs who may say that the earth is the goddess, is the, like the body of the goddess, or she is the earth or gave birth to the earth. So um, you see that idea. Um, there's a very strong uh, view of pantheism in um, that movie Avatar. Yeah, I just um, watched that again, actually, and I was really looking for it. And you can you can see that he's really made a beautiful example of pantheism. It, it's sort of, yeah, yeah, it's very attractive because he's made it so beautiful, but that, that is what that worldview is, is pantheism. Yes, exactly. Yes, it is in that movie. Um, and so you find this in some, um, some Eastern spiritual views. Um, now some people say Buddhism, but actually Buddhism denies this world as a a permanent reality. In other words, the kind the world we're living in is false. It's not really rea reality. So to say that they believe reality is God, and of course Buddhists don't have a God, so right. <laughs> that kind of makes paganism right. hard. They do believe that there is only one truth, one reality. Um, but, you know, which is kind of, uh, a monism, but there, but, you know, there's different forms of monism too, that all is one. So it's now just harder. Just for people listening who may not have heard that word monism before, just, just tell us what that means a little okay, bit. Okay. Yeah. Monism. A lot of people think it's the same as pantheism and, it, and, um, they can be two sides of the same coin, but it's not the same thing. Monism is all is one. So there actually there's everything is connected and part of the same thing. So you could see it as um, there's like one energy in the universe and we're all a part of that energy. We all come from that energy. Um, maybe there's the idea we'll all go back to that energy, but we're all expressions of that one energy, which is it's usually defined as a sacred type energy, although not always. And that would be a pantheistic view. 
But monism is still a different kind of view because you could have that view without believing in any kind of God, whereas the So would you say that Star Wars is sort of the monism, pantheism kind of side of things? Uh, you know, I have written articles on Star Wars because mm-hmm. I, I, um, what I see in Star Wars is the uh, Taoist view from the religion of Taoism, which is the yin and yang, you know, the dark side and light side of the force. Now, right. it is true that in Taoism, there is only the Tao. So that would be a monist, pantheist type view because all that exists is the Tao and everything came from the Tao. And the Tao, of course, is not a god. It's an impersonal kind of um, entity, I guess is the best way to put it, or force. And everything comes from the Tao and is some kind of expression. And so the idea in Taoism is that you have to harmonize yourself with these forces. Um, Yin and yang came from the Tao. And it's a lot more complicated than that. I don't even know the intricacies of it, but I did read a whole book on the history of Taoism, and Mm. and it was really quite complex. (laughs) So, um, so yes, I guess you could say that 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 the views in Star Wars reflect a type of monism and pantheism because there's this idea of the Force and. You know, when um, I forgot that guy who's always giving advice to uh, Yoda. Yeah, maybe it's Yoda, but I think it was one of the other ones. Maybe Obi. Obi Wan. Obi Wan. Yeah, I can't remember their names. I (laughs) I think I think he says to him, you know, close your eyes and just feel the force. I can't remember who says that to Luke when he's about to go off in his little contraption there, you know, and he flies through that that planet. Um. They said they tell him, just close your eyes and just feel, you know, just feel. In other words, don't look go by your regular senses, but just feel this force. And Yoda, there's a quote from Yoda that, you know, that we're just we're all luminant. We're all we're all Mm. light. We're just beings and luminescent beings. We are, I think he says. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I posted that once on Facebook because I was going through one of my phases where I was trying once again to expose the theology in Star Wars. And um, that is a very good quote, and that does express a a type of pantheism, that we're all part of this kind of sacred energy. Yeah. Okay, so so that's kind of a, a pretty good, clear view of pantheism. So what is panentheism, and how does that relate with pantheism, and what kind of religions are we going to find the view of panentheism in? Yes, and panentheism, which a lot of people do do not know about because they may know about pantheism but not panentheism, is a little more complicated, and I think it's harder to, to detect. But it is the belief that God is in creation and yet also transcends it, and creation is in God. So in a, in a literal kind of way, creation is in God. There are also views that are part of panentheism that are more subtle, such as the view that God, because of his nature, created. He created because that was part of his nature. I've seen some 
statements such as, well, God is a creative God, and therefore he had to create, you know, creation. Creation came about because that is God's nature to create. Well, that is a panentheistic statement because when you say that, it's establishing the nature of God with creation. It's tying his nature with creation in such a way that he is dependent on it. In other words, it's not that he created from his own free will, but he more or less created because it was his nature. It was something mm-hmm. that just that happened because of his nature. Um, a stronger way to say it, of course, would be that he was compelled to create, but you could say it in a, in a less strong way than that and just say, you know, he, he had to create because he was creative. But then you have a a dependence of God on creation. Well, and that's a good theological thing to be looking for. Yes. Just for listeners, when you're when you're reading Christian books or you're listening to uh, authors or, or podcasts or whatever, be looking for any kind of language that makes God dependent on anything or needy in some way. Uh, because anytime there's a deficiency in God, then that's really a ch- that that's like a a claim against his nature. God doesn't have needs. He doesn't have anything that's deficient. And if he did, he would be less than perfect. And so that's just something to kind of be looking for. Look for any language that portrays God as changing or uh, needy or dependent. Yes. And panentheism um, does uh, give you a God who changes because God is reacting to creation. Mm -hmm. And um, there's different forms. There's the panentheism from the neo-Orthodox people like Whitehead and some others. And they they were teaching that God changes and reacts to man and, and what's happening in creation. And God and they'll actually say God is learning things. Um, along with the things that are happening in creation and what man decides to do and how man develops, et cetera, God learns along with them. So is that open theism you're talking about? Well, that's an open theism as well. Yes, yes, that is an open. Well, I, th- I don't know if they say God learns, but they do say God only knows the possible future or God only knows the known future. In other words, God knows certain things about the future, but he doesn't know, for example, um, what job you're going to take if you're trying to decide between two job choices, or he doesn't know what you're going to choose to eat for breakfast next Friday. So, you know, there's, they, so in that way, you, you could say God is learning because he doesn't know yet. So when you do it, then right. he learns. Uh, he definitely changes. And when, right. when God is in time, if God has to be, if God is in time, he has to be affected by time. And mm. so that's another panentheistic view that God is affected by time. And of course, when, when something is in time, as we are, we go from moment to moment. We're, you know, we're changing from moment to moment. And what I'm saying right now, I'm not going to be saying exactly the same way in the same position. And I'm sitting with the same kind of breathing <laughs> in five minutes. Yeah. It'll be, you know, I'll be saying something different and I may have moved a little bit. So we're we're in sequence and we're doing this program in a particular sequence and everyone will hear it because we're all in time. But God is not in time because he create. Well, first of all, he created what we call time and he is 
present, and this is a very important point, um, not accepting panentheism does not mean one is rejecting omnipresence. Omnipresence and panentheism are not the same thing. I was going to ask you about that because I think that's the confusing thing for a lot of Christians yeah. is, you know, we know that God is, is omnipresent and that can sound a lot like panentheism. So maybe untie that knot right. a little bit and help us understand the differences. Yes, and that is hard to understand. And I, I want to give a disclaimer here that I am not a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> because the, in, when you get into philosophy, you know, people have these ways of expressing things um, that go a lot deeper than what I'm going to say. But omnipresence is that God is everywhere. And that is because, of course, God is spirit and God cannot be contained in any one locale. So you can't say God is over there, you know, over there in Europe, but he's not here right now. <laughs> um, and um, there's no way to contain God, of course, because he's he is God and he existed before us, before creation, and, and created us out of nothing. So God is just, he is present. He, he, he does not contain himself anywhere. So omnipresence, I, and to me, this makes a lot of sense, although some people have a hard time with it. I understand God is here now in, in this room where I am and can see what I'm doing and, of course, knows what I'm doing. But I also understand he's distinct from everything in this room. He's not a part of it. He doesn't have to be a part of it to be here. He doesn't have to be part of the tree that I'm looking at outside my window, but he's there. So omnipresence just means God is everywhere, but he is distinct from creation. That is how I usually define it. Mm -hmm. um, and eminence usually traditionally meant God is near, God is not far. He's not like this remote God way up somewhere um, that is not here. He's, he's imminent in the sense he is near um, all the time. But when I was, I, the other day I got curious about that word and I looked it up and apparently that word is connected a lot to ideas in panentheism. And I, I don't know if that's a change or not from a, you know, I don't know if traditionally that was, that idea was not, not there. But when I Googled it, all these links came up saying eminence has to do with the view of panentheism, which I found very interesting because hmm. uh, I, I don't, I don't think everybody agrees with that. And that's, that's another thing, panentheism and the ideas about it. Their variations on it, and a lot. Well, of I was just going to say it could be one of those redefining words kind of things, yes, where yes. eminence in panentheism might mean something different than it does in Orthodox belief, and uh, and I mean little o Orthodox. I don't mean Eastern Orthodox because there are some panentheistic views in Eastern Orthodox, and I didn't want to make the confusion there. <laughs> um, right, but but you know, like a more of a historic belief. So, are are there different types of panentheism, and what are the differences between? the different kinds of panentheism. Yes, and I, and I don't know all of them, but uh, there's a few. One I, I mentioned earlier about the um, neo-Orthodox people like Whitehead, 
who I think his first name was John. I can't remember for sure. And they taught this idea of this growing God. And this, these are people, mostly people within the church who were considered Christians who taught this idea, although there were also people with that idea who did not identify as Christians. Um, then you have what you mentioned, the Eastern Orthodox have a view of God uh, where he has energies and he has essence. So his essence is his nature, but his energies um, are his actions in the world. And they see that in a panentheistic way so that his activity in the world and his actions in the world can be part of what's going on. And in a, in a mystical sense, there were some monks who um, meditated, and this was called hesychasm, a type of meditation, and they meditated in such a way that they wanted to see the light of God, which was his energies, um, as I understand it. Uh, so they're basically, you're dividing God up. You're saying mm. there's his essence and there's his energies. And in the uh, classical Christian theist, theism, you don't divide God up. God does not have parts. You can't say, well, this is one part of him and this is another part of him. God is uh, a whole, W-H-O-L-E, in that sense, and there aren't any parts or divisions to him. So all his attributes, um, all the attributes he reveals about himself, his love, mercy, you know, goodness, kindness, uh, all the moral attributes, his omnipresence, everything is all who he is. And none of that can be taken out or replaced. And none of none of those attributes are ever it's never the case that one is stronger than the other. So mm -hmm. it's not like one day God's love happens to be stronger than his wrath on sin. And the, you know, the next day, you know, his wrath on sin has taken over and he has no love. So <laughs> everything right. is always balanced in God's nature, <clears throat> you know, because it does not change. Yeah. And if anyone's listening and you want to know more kind of about what Marsha's talking about right now, this uh, classical theism and what the idea of divine simplicity and God not having parts. I did a podcast on this with Dr. Brian Huffling from yes. SES. You know, you know, Brian. Yes. And um, it was it was a very clear. I think he really explained a lot of this stuff very clearly. So check back in the archives for that one if you want to know more about just how important it is, how we think about God and in, in the sense of divine simplicity and classical theism. Uh, so yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did listen to that. It was very good. And Dr. Huffling has a blog. Um, yes. It's very helpful. I have read uh, several of his articles. It's not fast reading. You have to <laughs> you yes. have to read and think about what he says, but he's a very good writer. And I learned a lot reading about these attributes of God and classical theism. So I, I certainly second your suggestion on that. Yes. We'll be back with Marsha in just a moment. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you have heard me talk about the amazing ministry of Impact 360, who facilitates summer experiences for students. Now, all of the summer experiences for this year are full, but 
If you want to get your teenager on the wait list, you can go to impact360.org and sign up for the wait list there. But here's the great news. Even if you can't be with Impact 360 in person, or even if you can't send your teenager to one of their summer experiences, you can still get the benefit of this amazing ministry through their Gen Z lab. The Gen Z lab is your guide to leading the next generation. That's Generation Z. Come away better equipped to champion a new generation and be equipped to guide them as they navigate this post-Christian culture. It's free. If you go to impact360.org and click on the Gen Z Lab tab, you'll get 10 plus hours of exclusive training, exclusive access to the launch of Gen Z Research by Barna and Impact 360. Lots of great stuff there. So definitely check that out, impact360.org and click on the Gen Z Lab tab. Marsha, I want to ask you about the the biblical basis for panentheism and some of these panentheistic views. Is this something that we can uh, reconcile with the Bible? And what are some verses that panentheists use to support their view? Yes, uh, there there is not a way uh, to make panentheism compatible with the Bible. It does. It just doesn't work. However. Uh, many people who say that the Bible supports it do you use certain passages. Uh, there's a few of them they use. Uh, one of them is Colossians 1:17, which talking about Christ, which says he is before all things and in him all mm. things hold together. So some say, well, see, God, uh, Jesus is holding the world together. Everything's in him and he's sustaining it. Well, of course, Christ is sustaining it, but he doesn't have to be part of it. And um, it's it's the idea. The idea here is that it's the power of Christ that is sustaining his power as Christ, you know, the son of God, (laughs) equal to God, uh, sustains creation. Because we know Colossians talks about, I think it's in Colossians that Jesus created the world. Uh, so he's sustaining it. Uh, so people read this in a way, instead of reading it in context, they read it literally. Another one is Ephesians 4.10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So uh, some people say, well, see, Christ fills everything. So he's in, he's in the universe. He's in the world. But in this case, fill also means to fulfill and to complete. And the Bible commentator Gill says this is that he might fulfill all things that were types of him or predicted concerning him, that as he had fulfilled many things already in his incarnation, all of the miracles, obedience, sufferings, death, he's now fulfilling everything um, after his resurrection and ascension. And another commentator said this has to do with uh, his relationship to those chosen in Christ, that he might fill each and every one of his people with his grace and righteousness with his spirit. So those are two different views of it. But neither one of these commentators has sees any panentheism in it. Right. And, right. and of course, if it did mean that literally, if it meant Jesus really fills the universe or everything is in him literally, we would have other very clear 
passages in the Bible that would teach this. There would right. be something you could clearly point to, but when you take these types of um, uh, statements uh, and you look at the context and you realize that there's nothing else supporting the idea that these are literal, you know that this this is not how to read it. I mean, we have to read in context, and the other principle of, of reading the Bible is to compare Scripture with Scripture. So right. you look at those Scriptures, and there's other Scriptures similar to the two I mentioned, and you see the context of it, and it is not a context of panentheism. Um, so, and there's, there's more, there's also, uh, these are from, uh, Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ. I didn't know if you wanted to ask me about that. Yes. I, in (laughs) fact, that's where I was going next. I definitely want to talk about Richard Rohr because he is a very controversial figure. He's, um, I see a lot of otherwise conservative Christians that really like him. Uh, Almost all the progressive people I know just love him. Like he's their guy. Yes. And so I definitely want to talk about this because he does affirm, as far as I understand, he does affirm panentheism. Is that correct? Yes. He openly affirms it. He's not shy about it at all. So, and you just read his new book, the universal Christ. And so, yeah, I want to talk about this. So first just tell us like, what does he mean? by universal Christ? Like, what does that title mean? What's he talking about? Yes, he is talking about the idea that Christ is is somebody who encompasses everything in him. Now, let me say this. There are many things in the book that are somewhat contradictory or they're, or they're inconsistent, so it's very hard to... Um, you know, cobbling together his theology Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, you know, he'll say one thing and you'll be like, oh, okay. So he thinks that. And then later he'll say another thing. And it's like, I found that to be true. I read his book on the Trinity and I found that to be true in that book as well. It was very hard to follow him because he was just all over the place and, and would, would seem to contradict himself. He would say something totally new age and then say, now some people might think this is new age, but it's not. And then he'd try to explain why it's not. And it's like, no, it actually is. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Yes. Yes. He does that in this book. And, um, in fact, he has said this book is sort of, um, in interviews, I heard some interviews before the book came out. He talked about it on one or two interviews I heard. And he said, this was a sort of continuation of his book on the Trinity, which Mm. you read and which I have Mm -hmm. not read, although I read about it and I did a post on a seminar that he gave based on that book, uh, because interestingly enough, William P. Young, author of The Shack, was one of the speakers Mm. in that. So (laughs) it shows. Yeah, that's not surprising at all. (laughs) Shows where he's gone. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So he's Yeah, so it's hard, uh, you know, because of these inconsistencies, but it is very consistent that he thinks Christ is, he doesn't say Christ is an energy, but that is kind of the idea because he makes a distinction between Jesus and Christ. So Jesus sort of embodied this Christ, but when he says that Mary, when she met the resurrected Jesus, realized that Jesus had become the Christ. Hmm. So he has the idea that Jesus and Christ are not one and the same. And that is very clear in his book. There's many Hmm. things he says. Um, So he he thinks that everything, all creation is in Christ. And he takes some 
verses that in scripture and and tries to use them like Colossians 3:11 he actually this is his paraphrase of well first I'm going to read Colossians verses 8 through 11 quickly. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Now that's verses 8 through 11 from Colossians 3. And this is how Richard Rohr restates Colossians 3.11, which was the last part that I read there. There is only Christ, he is everything, and he is in everything. That's his... Hmm. And he says in the book that he's taken the Bible and put in his own translation which wow. I, I would call a paraphrase, not a translation, especially in this case. Yeah. And so now is that what that passage is saying? No, of course not. It's talking about uh, putting on the new self. Once you have trusted in Christ, there is a new self and there's a renewal going on, which is the process of sanctification. And there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, you know, Scythian slave and Freeman, et cetera. In other words, the passage is telling us that this is true for everyone who is trusted in Christ, whether you're a slave, you know, or a rich person or a barbarian, whether you're a circumcised Jew, it doesn't matter. You are all being renewed, you know, through the process of sanctification in Christ in the sense that the Bible talks a lot about if you're a believer, you're in Christ. You belong to Christ. And Christ is all and all and in all showing Christ, the body of Christ, the believers in Christ, Christ is that body. Christ is the, the, the body of Christ or the believers in Christ. And, and the Bible talks about that too. And it doesn't mean the literal body of Jesus. Right. You know, it's talking about belonging to Christ and, and having been redeemed by him. So this is talking about the renewal, unity, and equality of all believers um, comprising comprising the body of Christ. And I put a quote from Barnes. I wrote an article on the book, which I have just sent to my webmaster. It was originally 4,000 words. Mm. <laughs> and I got Sounds it. Sounds like down. it's time for another book, Marcia. <laughs> I got it down. <laughs> I got it down to 2,888 words. <laughs> I got quite a bit there. I noticed I had a lot of repetition. I was giving examples of what he was saying, and I was giving like a lot of them, so I, I cut a lot of them out. Okay, so Barnes says about this passage, Christ absorbs in himself all distinctions, being to all alike everything that they need for justification, sanctification, and glorification. And I think that's a good summary of that passage. So, uh, you know, when you take it in context and from what other scriptures say, it's not literally saying that Christ, you know, everything is literally in Christ. And of course, it's only talking about believers in Christ. And in all of these passages that Richard Rohr uses, he applies it to everybody in the world. He mm. even applies it to creation, to the animals and the flowers mm. and the, you know, the trees. Um, he uses 1 Corinthians 15, 28 
Uh, and that verse is, and when all things shall be subdued to him, then shall the son also himself be subject to him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So that last part, God may be all in all, he says, shows, you know, everything is in God and God's in everything. But of course, this is about the uh, bodily resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, that's what most of it is about, and his victory over death. And in that passage, Paul applies a quote from Psalm 8 to Christ, which shows Christ as having conquered sin and death and presenting this victory to the Father. So this is in the context of, around that verse. Everything will be redeemed so that God is recognized as the ruler over all because it has come through his will and through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Um, so one commentary said the words involve a complete and absolute uh, supremacy and the restoration of God's kingdom over the moral and spiritual part of man which was the object of Christ's mission on earth. It's the consummation of God's redemptive plan through the victory, victory of Christ. And again, you know, the all in all is sort of a statement of victory. God will be, you know, glorified over all. Everything is, 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 becomes victorious over death and sin through the resurrection of Christ and his rulership. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a victory verse, basically. And other passages, um, he, uh, Roar uses also the Colossians 1.17, which I discussed earlier. And I think a good passage for Christians to keep in mind regarding this topic is Romans 1, where I think starting around verse 18, where it discusses how creation is evidence for a creator and so this makes everyone accountable for knowing there is a creator. Nobody is without excuse. In other words, you can tell from creation that there must be someone who created all this. It reflects a creator, God. But And so you see, it says you see his invisible attributes. Well, that's because you can tell from, from creation that there is somebody with power mm. and majesty who created the world, and it gives evidence for a creator. Nothing in, you know, that passage supports panentheism. Um, it, you know, it really does the opposite because it's talking about God as creator. And if God is creator, he cannot be part of the world. Um, in the New Age, there's a very popular idea that creation came out of God and that he created so that he could see himself. This is actually expressed mm. in the book, a uh, very popular bestseller a number of years ago, Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. Yes, yes. Yeah, where he claims to have started asking God questions and then God answered them. It was mm. really kind of through a process of automatic writing, although he doesn't use that term. That's mm -hmm. what he describes. And and God and so in one part of the book he talks about how you know God created everything out of Himself. He wanted to see Himself. He wanted to know what love was by creating something. And there's that language to look for of God needing anything yes. or being deficient in anything. Like you don't have to be a theologian to recognize some of this stuff. Just look for any language 
where it's portraying God as not having everything, like needing something that he does not have or in any way being deficient because being deficient would make him less than perfect. And, and so, you know, that's, that's why those ideas are so dangerous, but it's really, I wanted to kind of pull out a point you brought up that I think is important to talk a bit more about. And that's how you mentioned that Richard Rohr was applying a verse that has to do with believers and he was applying it to all people. And there's a concept that Jay Gresham Machen was writing about in Christianity and liberalism called the, I think he called it the universal brotherhood of mankind. And a lot of Christians can fall into this where we view all people as children of God, but actually biblically, you're not called a a child of God until you've been adopted into his family because by nature we're enemies of God. We're children of wrath. And so when we put our trust in Jesus, there's an adoption that happens and, and we become children of God. But when we view everyone and all of creation like a children of God, it can be very confusing because it sounds good. It, it sounds like something you'd mm-hmm. want to affirm, but, mm-hmm. but there's an important biblical distinction that we have to make there. And, and so it can cause a lot of theological confusion. It sounds a little bit like that's what he was doing there. Yes, absolutely. Uh, He takes passages that apply to those who have believed and put their trust in Christ and been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He applies those statements to everybody and and to everything. And so uh, it's, and like you say, it's an easy thing to fall into um, because it's very appealing to think that way. Um, But it sounds loving. You know, it sounds sounds like exactly, exactly. Like I don't want to reject anyone. God doesn't want to reject anybody. Every everything, everyone's included, and He does talk a lot about inclusive. And He says, Roar says that you know, as you begin to understand who this universal Christ is, you you become more inclusive. Um, And He even talks about Paul that Paul recognized the universal Christ and and had a paradigm shift. And that's what Paul was talking about, that Paul was talking about the universal Christ and not the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm. Says that's those are two different beings, basically. Um, so this universal Christ, he also identifies Christ with creation. Um, and in his, and this is not in the book, although he says this in the book in different words, but in one of his blogs, he says, Christ is the name for the very shape and meaning of the universe. Wow. Um, and he said, because uh, he also said that in a, in a podcast that Christ uh, originated with the Big Bang. Wow. That, Wait, okay. Yeah. So is he saying that Christ <laughs> is a created being? Well, I, I that is not clear to me. Um, because I think in other places he said Christ is eternal. I'm not positive he said that, but I know on the podcast and, and in another interview, he, he, in fact, he likes to use that term that, wow. you know, the Big Bang, Christ originated with the Big Bang, which certainly sounds like Christ was created. Um, and unless he thinks the, or, or, I don't know. Or he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about this cosmic Christ. Yes, he's talking originated. about this cosmic universal Christ. Exactly. And he does, he has used the term cosmic Christ. He doesn't have a book called that. Well, Matthew Fox has a book called the coming of the cosmic Christ, which I've read. Matthew Fox is an Episcopal priest 
who um, is very influential in the New Age movement, but also some of the emergents like Matthew Fox. Yes. In fact, in the living, it's called Living the Questions, and it's the the only that I know of, the only comprehensive survey of progressive Christianity, and it's written by progressive Christians, and they, they use Matthew Fox's material quite a bit. Oh, wow. In that That's book. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I would, uh, Matthew Fox also identifies as a panentheist. And even though um, I don't, unless I missed it, I don't think Richard Rohr mentions Matthew Fox. I It's, it's hard for me to believe he either um, has not been influenced by Matthew Fox or in some way does not agree with him. But maybe he doesn't want to identify with him because Matthew Fox is even more controversial Mm. than Richard Rohr because Matthew Fox is out there with some other ideas. I mean, he had a has a Wicca practitioner, you know, at his center there in California, et cetera. So he's he's even you know, he's way out there further than some would see Richard Rohr. In fact, a lot of people see Richard Rohr as very orthodox. I know. Because I think they have not, they are not aware of some of these ideas. And um, I, you know, I find that to be very common. He's very, very popular among Christians. Uh, He has a very pleasant way of talking. He has a personality, he has an engaging personality. Mm-hmm. And he, um, the way he talks, he talks almost confidentially to people interviewing him like, well, you know, that's what I used to think. And he's, you know, he just, he, I'm sure sitting down having a conversation with him would be very enjoyable because he's, he's an enjoyable person. Mm-hmm. But these ideas are Unbiblical. However, because he's so engaging and and intelligent, and he's claiming this is Christianity, and he's talking about the Bible and God and Jesus. When you're sitting there listening to him, and I'm talking about as a somebody watching him on you know the computer on a on a, mm-hmm. on a YouTube interview or something or a talk, you you want to agree with him. You know, right. kind of want to nod your head and go, yes, that's that makes so much sense, Richard. I I, I think that's a good idea. Right. <laughs> it's amazing. He he just has that ability to get you in his corner. Um, and in this book, I think it's 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 there too, because his personality comes across in the book. But yeah, he has said before that the first incarnation was creation. Hmm. And the second, well, and that's the thing about his personality too, that, that you're right. I haven't, you know, I haven't dived really deep into the Richard Rohr pool just a little bit here and there. And I've listened to some of his videos and read one of his books and some of his blog posts. Uh, but my, my take on him is that the reason that he can almost be more tricky than some of the others is that he's not actually claiming to be progressive. He's actually claiming to be historical, like a historic Christian, because he's a Franciscan friar, his, the tradition that he comes from goes way back. And, and so he can be a little bit more confusing because, uh, he, he identifies with some of these more historic things, but what he's actually saying is really, really progressive. Yes, it is. And and even in the, the latest interview I read that I, I sent you yesterday, someone had sent me that yesterday morning and, and was in a UK uh, Christian um, news reporter or magazine or some kind of source there in the UK. Um, he talks about how this is biblical. He is not going against the Bible. He is teaching what the Bible says and the interview is about this book and apparently it was done before the book came out and he's telling the, per- the person interviewing him, 
I am not going against scripture. I am not going against Christianity. I, I am just showing what is in the Bible, what is there. So you're right. He doesn't claim he's not the rebel or, you know, the outsider or somebody trying to make everything topsy-turvy. He just claims that he has seen the, the real message in here. Mm. And um, I want to give you two quick quotes that show his his panentheistic ideas with, with Christ. He says, Jesus is the here, Christ is the depth of here. Hmm. And then he said, he also says, if Christ is the source and goal, then Jesus is the path from that source toward the goal of divine unity with all things. Now, he does refer to Teilhard de Chardin a few times in this book, and he, on his blog, he has many, many blogs about Teilhard de Chardin, who was a Catholic priest whose teachings became very questionable, and the church um, pretty much, they didn't, I don't think they declared him a heretic, but they kind of censored him and said, you know, his teachings are not really um, along the lines of uh, the traditional Roman Catholic teachings, and they mm -hmm. they discourage people from you know following his ideas. Now there has been a recently a revival to bring him back and to see him as as an orthodox. I'm, I'm thinking that I heard maybe Rob Bell quote him. Is that? Oh, that could be. I don't know if Rob Bell quoted him, but that would not surprise me because Rob Bell has been very influenced by Richard Rohr. Both he and Brian McLaren have spoken at, at uh, Richard Rohr's conferences at his center in New Mexico, in Albuquerque. Um, the Center for Action and Contemplation is a is a big center that Richard Rohr has there and where he does a lot of his teachings and his conferences and People come there from all over. All kinds of people speak there. And uh, both of those men have spoken there. And he, since Richard Rohr talks so much about Teilhard de Chardin and his blog, and uh, sometimes elsewhere, <clears throat> I'm sure that, that he's either talked to them about it or maybe it made them curious. But mm -hmm. And Teilhard de Chardin, I'm not an expert on, but the gist of it, from what I understand, is that he taught Christ is pulling everything in creation towards this omega point. He called it an omega point. And the omega point, the end point of everything will be when everything becomes perfect. Um, everything becomes renewed and perfect, but it's everything and everybody is being pulled towards that end point by Christ, who, who is sort of almost like a force because Christ is is pulling, you know, is actually physically causing this thing to happen in creation. Um, so that's the idea, as I understand it from Tahir de Chardin. I also understand that his history is that he was a he was a scientist. He was a priest and a scientist, but he was trying to make the theory of evolution compatible with Christianity, and so. Um, I think maybe his idea that Christ was part of this evolutionary process, both physically and spiritually, as is how he saw it as being compatible with the Bible. And so that was his teaching. And apparently that teaching, whether Richard Rohr is really being totally faithful to Tahir de Chardin, I don't know, but he definitely uses him as inspiration and refers to him quite a bit. 
Well, we're we're about out of time for this week, but the good news is is that Marsha, you're coming back uh, for next week's podcast as well. So we're going to continue the conversation, and we'll release part two uh, on the next podcast. So if you're listening and you're like, "Oh my gosh, this was great! I need more," you're going to get more of Marsha. Uh, Marsha, you are just delightful, and I want to thank you so much for being on today. And we'll we'll talk next week about more about panentheism, where we're seeing panentheism come into some Christian writings and progressive Christian writings, and even some that aren't necessarily considered progressive, but it's sort of peppering itself in there as well. So we're going to talk about all that next time. Uh, thanks for being on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Elisa. This was this was very enjoyable. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.